You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week, or at least one that was better than mine. I was bedridden for the majority of last week thanks to a pulled hip muscle that was so painful it mimicked the flu. So enjoy this episode that was primarily written by painkillers and delirium brought on by sleep deprivation. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Thor, Love, and Thunder. Now, if you love the last Thor movie, chances are pretty good you'll at least partially like this one. This movie is director Taika Waititi's vision at his full power thanks to what I'm sure was maximum budget. While that was the strength of the last Thor, I don't know if it was this time around. This time, the absurdity felt quite forced. In many places, it was actually just kind of cringe. And the movie was kind of a disaster pacing-wise, which really affected everything else. The best part for me was Christian Bale as the villain in this film. Easily top five MCU villain for me. He was so good. So overall, New Thor is fine. It's not the best one. It's certainly not the worst one. But a little bit of a letdown overall. Now, on to this week's topic. This week, a film that fell at the feet of hubris as production ran starkly over schedule and budget due to its director's obsessive vision, while the inexperienced gatekeepers at the studio financing the film failed to intervene in time. This week, we cover Heaven's Gate, the film that broke Hollywood. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. It has been called the most controversial motion picture of its time. It is the most talked about and written about film of the decade. Now, from the director of The Deer Hunter, United Artists presents Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. The story of Jim Averill. He was born into the world of the rich and powerful, but his heart and dreams were with the people. Heaven's Gate. The story of a man's love for a woman, for a people, for a land, for a spirit that would never die. Chris Christofferson in Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. It began the way many stories of those pursuing Hollywood glory do. Commercial director Michael Cimino, a Yale-educated, highly successful in his field individual, had moved from the East Coast to La La Land in 1971 to pursue screenwriting and film directing as making one-minute commercials as a commercial director was no longer a fulfilling job for him. Chimino had a reputation for creating incredible visuals in his work that were notoriously time-consuming to achieve, a reputation that didn't follow him to Hollywood. 
A few years after moving to Los Angeles, Chimino got his big break after Clint Eastwood purchased his script Thunderbolt and Lightning for his production company. Chimino was offered the opportunity to direct, which he accepted, and the film ultimately released in 1974 to high critical praise and a very good box office return, and lo, a professional showbiz career was born. Several directing offers came Chimino's way, but he decided to gamble after one film, deciding that he was only going to make films that he wanted to make and not what was offered to him. In 1976, Chimino convinced EMI, once one of the biggest transnational conglomerates in the world, to produce his next project, an ambitious Vietnam War film. And it's the one that if you had to name like that other quintessential film about the Vietnam War for this era that wasn't Apocalypse Now, you'd probably think of. Yep, The Deer Hunter. The film starred Robert De Niro, Christopher Walken, and John Savage as three pals from a steel town who fight in Vietnam and then attempt to rebuild their lives stateside. The Deer Hunters production went over schedule and over budget, mostly due to things out of the production's control, but it became a massive critical and commercial success and won five Oscars, including Best Director and Best Picture, which overshadowed any of the other issues. After Deer Hunter... Chimino was pretty much seen as the second coming and basically got a free pass for his third film as far as his new studio, United Artists, was concerned. Clearly, this dude had the golden touch. Now, we'll refer to United Artists as UA going forward. And if you remember... This is the studio that was originally founded by the likes of Mary Pickford, D.W. Griffith, Charlie Chaplin, and Douglas Fairbanks. And when Chimino started business with them, that studio was on a hot streak. The majority of the studio had been purchased in 1967 by Transamerica Corporation, a holding company for several insurance and investment firms, based solely on the studio's television and film hits. Though in the years leading up to when Transamerica purchased UA, like most Hollywood studios at this time, it was struggling financially. Under Transamerica's ownership, a pretty prosperous score of years followed, which included five Oscar wins for In the Heat of the Night in 67, Midnight Cowboy in 69, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 75, Rocky in 76, and Annie Hall in 77. Even though United Artists was releasing clearly incredibly solid films and prided itself on not babysitting its filmmakers when they were making the films, which also explains why they attracted so many of the major talents of the day that they did, the relationships with those running the studio at the tippy top at UA and at the parent company began growing tumultuous when Transamerica tried to put restrictions on what kinds of films UA was allowed to make. Everything eventually came to a head over administrative expenses, which caused a mass exodus of UA's top executives, starting with Arthur Krim and Robert Benjamin, whom had been handpicked by Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin to save their studio. Krim and Benjamin went off to found their own studio or production company, rather, Orion, which you may have heard of, and took many of their top people with them in the process. This series of events turned UA into a laughingstock in the process. Why the hell would Transamerica mess up what was essentially a golden goose? The poor a-holes that inherited the UA executive jobs were not experienced. Most of them are mid-level executives, and those dudes were desperate to carry on the frankly madly successful streak the studio had been on with no practical experience and no know-how to actually do the jobs they had just been handed. 
Naturally, they assumed that Michael Cimino would be the man to create this next generation of studio executives magnum opus, a Gone with the Wind level epic set in the American West. The film these execs based their careers and futures in the industry on was called Heaven's Gate, not the cult. This is completely different. Set during the Johnson County, Wyoming War, which was more of a conflict than a war, of 1889 to 1893, the film tells the story of a conflict between cattlemen and the European immigrant homesteaders migrating to the region. While this was a real thing that happened, Chimino's versions of events in the film had very little basis in historical reality and also stated that the killing of homesteaders during this time by hired mercenaries was actually sanctioned by the highest echelons of the American government and not just the local cattle bear. Even the historically real individuals portrayed in the film were not always an accurate depiction of the actual men. Not not a crucial thing, really, but just just something to think about. Chimino had actually been trying to get this film made since he'd arrived in Hollywood, but had been unable as the film had failed to attract any talent to procure funding. On the night he won his Oscars for The Deer Hunter, UA, whose best picture streak he'd just broken, offered him $11.6 million and a blank check policy to make this film. Chimino had initially told UA that he could make it for $7.5 million, so $11.6 would give him some wiggle room. Turned out it was a good thing he had that blank check policy because as the production expanded, so did the film's budget. 500% in fact by the time the film reached theaters, all of which was approved by the new UA executives. When there was any pushback about funding in those early days, Chimino effectively steamrolled all the executives because he knew they weren't experienced enough in their roles to tell him no. A week after winning Best Picture, on April 16, 1979, cameras on Heaven's Gate began to roll in Glacier National Park in Montana. This would be the film that Chimino believed would cement him in Hollywood history, which it did, though not in the way he planned. The production size of this picture was gigantic and included 1,200 extras and entire towns in Montana and Idaho that were taken over for multiple weeks of production to take place and during that time were converted into just massive period accurate sets. Chimino's goal was absolute historical accuracy. He wanted to transport his audience back nearly 100 years. He also didn't want someone sitting in a theater who would like look at a fixture or an invention or a costume or what have you and point out that it wasn't period accurate. Yes, people have sat next to me in a theater. Michael Cimino was attempting to make a Caitlin Proof film. For the actors to match the scene of historical perfection, this included for them something that they called Camp Chimino. As Jeff Bridges recounted in an interview, this began most days at 7 a.m. with writing lessons, then 9 a.m. cockfighting lessons, tried to find out what entailed in that particular lesson, but alas could not, then dialect coaching. Other actors mentioned gun lessons, dancing lessons, roller skating lessons. Yes, there is a huge roller skating sequence in this film. And all of this took place six weeks before the cameras ever rolled. This training would come in handy, especially when considering that the actors were doing much of their own horseback riding and were often awoken at 3.30 a.m. on the battle scene days to prepare for the three-hour trek to set. So knowing what you were doing while being sleep-deprived was probably real helpful. 
Cast and crew would actually have to bring pillows for these shoots, by the by, so they could actually attempt to sleep in the vans that would take them to the remote set as it was the only one Shamina would approve. And it was accessed by only by like really bumpy dirt roads. So, you know, I doubt anyone got too much sleep. Camp Chimino was not a unique thing. As we have discussed on this podcast, director Francis Ford Coppola also has boot camps for his actors much of the time. And since the birth of the epic film, and even now with like the big action films, there's training regiments and extensive rehearsal periods for actors. It's still it's still a thing. With all of this, though, what set Chimino apart on this film was his fanatical attention to detail in all matters, something that would severely affect the production of the film. Examples of Chimino's fanatical attention to detail included a street that had been built exactly how he'd asked them to the exact specifications, which had to be torn down and rebuilt because it, quote, didn't look right. The street, turns out, needed to be six feet wider, and the set construction boss said it would just be cheaper to tear down one side and move it six feet. But Chimino insisted that both sides be deconstructed and each moved back three feet, then assembled. I'm assuming it had something to do with how the sun set or whatever it is. Otherwise, that is just so fully asinine. Another thing, an entire tree was cut down and was relocated to a courtyard in Oxford where the Harvard scene at the beginning of the film was shot during the reshoots. They cut that tree down specifically for that reason. Chimino also had an underground irrigation system built under the land where the major battlefield would be shot so that it would remain lush and green when they were shooting in August so that it would contrast with like the the red blood that was going to, you know, be involved in that scene when it was eventually shot. Chimino's obsessive behavior soon earned him the nickname the Ayatollah, and on the slate he was named as such. The DP was renamed the Eye of the Ayatollah. Another obscenely time-consuming thing that he did was how he, like, arranged the extras. He would have them up in, like, a line, and he would pick them one by one and then just place them in each each part of a scene, which is just a level of type anus that even I can't touch. In this case, essentially, according to the film's DP, V.S. Zygmunt, Chimino was, quote, painting by picking people. Now, once all of that was figured out, Chimino actually had to shoot a movie. And Chimino was unpredictable when it came to this as well, with some shots taking 40 takes and above. The record was apparently 57 takes from one angle. This is highly irregular, as most scenes, if you're getting past even five clean takes on a professional shoot from a single angle, you're getting a little bit excessive, especially when shooting was done on actual film, which was a resource you could run out of. A little bit harder with digital, possible, but significantly harder. Film, way easier to run out of film. (laughs) Anything beyond like five takes, maybe eight, I'm, I'm trying to give him, I'm trying to give him a benefit of a doubt, but it's so above and beyond. But anything beyond that, you're getting ridiculous. 57 is actually not a crazy number of takes for an entire day, considering that you shot at different angles and did different scenes just to give you kind of a baseline. One scene, which, for example, featured a drunk Chris Christopherson cracking a whip, for example, took 52 takes of just the master shot, which is the widest one that you kind of cut to in case of like an issue in the close-ups. It's, it's basically supposed to be your safety shot. Like, it captures all the action, so you get the whole scene and that one thing, and if anything, God forbid, goes wrong, you can cut to that and and be okay. It's supposed to be, that one, two takes. Three takes max. 
Chimino did 52 takes of the master shot, and it took the entire day. So just keep in mind, of those 52 takes, he could make, he could use like one of them. The other 51 are all getting chucked in the bin. Just all of that film, gone. Actor Brad Dourif called Chimino's method, quote, workshopping on film. And what he said he was essentially doing was trying different emotions with each take. Happy take, sad take, crying take. Just getting like a whole like directory of of things that he could pull from. Honestly, this hints at the fact, at least to me, that Chimino probably didn't have a fully fleshed out idea of the tone that he wanted this film to be or the story he was trying to convey, even though he wrote it. That's not a, that's not a regular. It, this, this speaks more to inexperience and just hubris more than anything else. So by attempting to capture everything, he could, in theory, piece together a better film in the edit. You know, you have every you can pull from every possible thing. This this might sound like a great idea. The problem with trying to capture every emotion you possibly can is that all of that film and the time it takes to shoot it is incredibly expensive. Some of you that actually work in this industry might go, well, the producers, what of the producers? Somebody's got to be on set, like telling him like, no, you can't shoot something 52 times. Well, the only producer, a.k.a. the person that should be reeling him in on location, was Chimino's longtime collaborator, friend, and sometimes lover, and one source said at one point his wife, Joanne Corelli. The two knew each other from their days in New York, where she'd been an agent for commercial directors. In fact, Corelli had been the one to convince Chimino to head to Hollywood to pursue a career in screenwriting. Heaven's Gate was her first time as a producer. So let's be honest, she was likely there in name only because you have to have a producer on set, and Chimino was just fully the ringleader of the shit show. The lack of anyone telling him what to do meant that he could shoot 57 takes or 52 takes or whatever the hell he wanted and run way behind schedule because who was gonna tell him no? The execs over a thousand miles away whom he'd already walked all over when they tried to, like, apply rules? Please. Through all of this, a technically inaccurate portrait of Chimino was painted in the press stories that began leaking out of Montana of a chaotic director who had no freaking clue as to what he was doing. But he was, and, and also there was some that he was just like screwing around. That was not true. In reality, Chimino was just very, very meticulous and as thorough as he'd been throughout the entirety of his career, he just had absolutely no sense of time and had no problem taking however long it took to get what he wanted. That meticulousness, though, that was celebrated during his time as a commercial director was now risking the future of his career as a movie director. Six days into shooting, so the legend goes, the production was five days behind schedule and had spent $900,000 on just 90 seconds of usable footage. Two weeks into filming, he was 10 days behind schedule and had only shot three minutes of what Chimino had deemed usable footage. UA calculated that, at the rate he was going, Heaven's Gate was going to cost them $1 million per minute of running time. That's a number really only seen in the big special effects movies today, and pretty much unheard of 40 years ago. They also estimated that at the rate they were shooting, Heaven's Gate was going to run 131 days over its original 69 shooting day schedule. 
Without the power of hindsight, UA kept feeding the beast and not making any other films as all of their money was quickly getting tied up in Heaven's Gate, not unlike Fox and Cleopatra back in the 1960s. But the inexperienced UA execs believed the film would propel them to the Oscars and make them a shitload of money in the process and oh, the Hollywood glory they were going to get once this film was made. Keep in mind, all of this was banked on by people whom had never been close to a film shoot in their lives. Their inexperience would cost them dearly. Another issue that they were kind of having trouble reckoning with was, unlike last week's film, which was inhibited by acts of God and actors' health issues and just random bullshit happening, this was not the case when it came to Heaven's Gate. They knew what the problem was. Their problem with the film getting completed on time and on budget was being directly caused by the film's director. In a Hail Mary pass and in a break with the studio's tradition of letting directors just do their thing on set, a United Artists exec was eventually sent to Wyoming in an attempt to contain Chimino. And he was one of the only execs on the payroll who had any kind of actual film production experience. Chimino took this as a hostile move, not a supportive one, and responded by dictating and posting the following memo. Quote, Derek Cavanaugh, the exec, is not to come to the location set. He is not to enter the editing room. He is not to speak to me at all. Soon, the budget grew from the agreed-upon $11.6 million to a whopping $25, with the studio being prepared to, when all was said and done, having to pay $50 million to see the film into release, which would make it the most expensive film ever made up until that point. In another desperate attempt to gain control, UI tried to get EMI, whom had funded The Deer Hunter for Chimino, to come in and fund half of this film to relieve some of the financial burden. EMI's people took one look at the books and pieced out pretty quick. After Chimino's memo tantrum, United Artists seriously considered firing him and replacing him with another director. Yes, the footage he captured was incredible, but he was taking too damn long to get it. That time-old saying, time is money, is never more accurate than on a film set. Honestly, if they had tried to do this, in my opinion, based on everything I read, I'm pretty sure the only way they would have gotten Michael Chimino off of that set was as a corpse. By this point in production, Chimino could not be reasoned with in any way. He was caught up in his own self-made mythos that this film was going to be the next Gone with the Wind and that it would make him a god on the Olympus of filmmaking and it didn't matter whose money he had to spend to make that happen and he didn't care about whose time he was wasting to get the shots he needed and he did not care about lunch. So for you film people, just meal penalties just like raining down like dollar bills at a strip club like so so just yeah and at the end of the day the executives at ua wanted this picture so badly for similar reasons and while canceling it altogether had been considered they had to opt against it they were far too down the chimino rabbit hole and didn't want to be any more of a laughing stock than they already were at this point they couldn't back out either everybody just had to get through this so, the executives at UA found their way to take control by firing the film's producer and instead installing UA itself as the producer of the film. Firing Chimino, they realized, just wasn't going to be a viable option. He'd written the film and put all of his heart and soul into it. They just needed a proper grown-up to tell him, no, you can't shoot 52 takes of Chris Christopherson drunkenly cracking a whip. 
By installing themselves as the producer of the film, UA instilled in Shimino that they were his boss, despite his actions up until that point alluding otherwise. And now, as a straight employee of UA, no longer a partner of UA as he'd been, if he violated enough of his contract, they could fire him and take away his right to the final cut of the film, which is what he wanted utmost. All of this fixed Chimino's attitude real quick. Soon after that, the blank check policy was canceled. He was capped at that $25 million, which he tried to protest. <laughs> there wasn't a whole hell of a lot he could do at this point. By August 1979, Chimino had managed to get two days ahead of the new schedule UA had put into place, and it was looking like he'd make budget, too. But the damage was done, and the whole world was about to hear the extent of just how crazy this set was. Les Gapay was a freelance writer working in Montana when he requested to be given access to the Heaven's Gate set to write an article. When he was told no, it was a closed set, Gapay gained access by becoming one of the film's extras. He worked on the film for two months, earning $30 a day in the process, so in a way, UA paid the man to spy on their set and basically murder their movie. Gapay would ultimately write an article for the LA Times, which would paint Chimino as an indulgent director with no care for the repercussions of what it took for his film to be made. In the article, he described incidences of extras fainting, injuries to horses and other animals, disregard for the crew or their safety or anybody's safety, really, and of course, the extensive takes. Gapay called the whole thing a farce, and the rest of the nation's media took this story and went wild. The mighty Academy Award winner, Michael Cimino, had fallen from grace so fast. On the set, Cimino continued shooting his epic, unshaken by the negative press. At the end of the day, Cimino shot more than 1.5 million feet of film, which was about 225 hours, which was a record at the time, and it cost the studio approximately 200k per day. Six months after shooting had began, Cimino returned to Hollywood, confident he had just shot his masterpiece. Now, for some historical context, up until this point, more or less, the 1970s had been an era of the auteur director in Hollywood, the decade that saw the rise of your Spielbergs, Coppola, Lucas, Scorsese, Friedkin, Bogdanovich, the list goes on and on. These are the directors whose unique visions had saved a crumbling studio system and brought in a new era of storytellers that the studios were willing to throw money at because they were making pictures that were bringing in a shitload of money, something that hadn't really been a thing since before the television had come into direct competition with them. If you're, you know, more schooled with everything, this was called New Hollywood. And this was really the only time in at least American cinematic history that audiences could be drawn in more by a film's director than necessarily a star. But as the decade was coming to a close, the bubble was beginning to burst. As the director's visions got more eccentric, whether they wanted to or not, they were becoming more pretentious. And more and more, the films that were coming out of Hollywood were just not jiving with audiences nor critics. And it was beginning to look like Heaven's Gate was going to be the bubble burster. Because of Heaven's Gate's budget overruns, many of the filmmakers whom had made their homes at UA or studios like it became angered at the news that money that might have been allocated to their cheaper films that they had pitched to UA had been funneled into Chimino's, like, shit show. 
again, Chimino was unfazed and he was super busy editing. And Chimino's edit room was treated just as meticulously as his set had been. Reportedly, during post-production, Chimino changed the lock to the studio's editing room and put bars on the windows, prohibiting executives from seeing the film until he completed his cut, although Chimino disputed this version of events. I saw an interview with Penelope Shaw, an AE on the project, who said that all of this stuff happened, and I'm inclined more to believe her over this dude after everything I heard that he lied about. Not gonna lie. Chimino managed to negotiate some reshoots, which were done to procure a prologue and epilogue scenes, which were shot in Oxford, England, which doubled for Harvard, whom had refused to participate in the film. While they were over there, every day, the execs got a call that the filming for the day was finished, on time and on schedule, and on budget. If there was any other report, the whole thing would be stopped in its tracks, and Chimino would not get his opening and closing. Heaven's Gate finished shooting nearly a year after it began in March 1980, having cost nearly $30 million in production expenses. By the time the film reached theaters, that 7.5 Chimino had initially estimated had ballooned to $44 million. Chimino and his editors had had six months to finish the film as UA refused to push its Christmas of 1980 release date because Oscars. After eight months of 18-hour days of editing, an exhausted Chimino allowed the UA execs to see the film at the end of June 1980, telling him that he could maybe cut 15 minutes out of the current cut. For context, if you've been listening closely enough, you, you, you know what's probably coming. Chimino was supposed to take that 225 hours of film he shot and turn it into a two, maximum three-hour film per his contract. The cut he showed the executives, that one he said he could cut maybe 15 minutes out of, was five hours and 25 minutes long. The battle sequence at the end of the film was reportedly the length of most feature-length films. The execs left the screening room furious after seeing what Shimino had brought to them. That dude had put them through hell. They'd canceled and delayed other pictures to be able to afford this film and spurned scores of professional and probably private relationships along the way. And Chimino couldn't follow one simple instruction that had been in his contract from day one. Another round of editing commenced because they made him. And by the end of October, Heaven's Gate was brought down to three and a half hours. Not a single executive was going to be able to see the film before it premiered. And they decided not to delay the film despite this fact. Everything was riding on making Oscar season. Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate premiered in New York City on November 19th, 1980. And the reviews the next day sealed everyone's fate. The initial critical reception to the film was pretty much universally negative. The most notorious one came from New York Times critic Vincent Canby, who called the film, quote, an unqualified disaster, comparing it to, quote, a forced four-hour walking tour of one's own living room. Canby went even further by stating that, quote, it fails so completely that you might suspect Mr. Chimino sold his soul to the devil to obtain the success of the deer hunter and the devil has just come to collect. 
whether this or any of the reviews written about the film were written solely just about the film's quality is debatable, as many critics seem to take this chance to write their review for this film as a way to pull back on their previous praising of The Deer Hunter, which some believed had been overhyped. They were also likely reacting to the reports from the set and Chimino's open hostility to the whole machine. Nearly universally, the critics never allowed this film to be seen just on its merits as a finished picture, as had been the standard before this decade. Guessing where this was probably going, Transamerica wrote off the production of the film's cost as a loss just two days after the film's premiere. After a horrendous one-week run in theaters, Chimino and United Artists mutually agreed to pull the film from theaters after releasing a one-page letter in the trades explaining what they were going to do and postponed the worldwide release until Chimino could cut out another hour from the film. Pulling Heaven's Gate from theaters turned out to be the worst thing they could have done. In those intervening months, any respect Chimino had earned as a director had dissipated. The film was called the biggest flop in Hollywood history in the interim as a flurry of news reports continued to condemn the film's production as a whole. The main question everyone was asking was, why was this film allowed to be made at all? On April 24, 1981, Heaven's Gate opened in 810 theaters in a director's cut, which ended up being a 2-hour and 29-minute version of the film. Critics still by and large blasted it, and Heaven's Gate closed after two weeks, taking in $3.5 million at the box office, a far cry from what it had cost to make. Of course, the executives at UA were fired en masse as a result, the ones that were left anyway, and a few days later, Transamerica decided to sell United Artists to MGM and get out of the motion picture business altogether. It had finally happened. A single film had destroyed a once major film studio, one that had been founded by cinema titans. Norbert Auerbach, UA's president of production, was at the Cannes Film Festival when he heard the news. In response, he blamed Heaven's Gate for all that was wrong with Hollywood in an article and declared that if the money of the studios was not taken away from the creatives, Hollywood would essentially just burn. So it comes as no surprise, I'm sure, that considering all of this, that Heaven's Gate would ultimately be blamed for ending the chucking money at movie days of the 1970s and for essentially ushering in the corporate-controlled blockbusters of the 1980s, a practice that by and large continues to this day. Because of Heaven's Gate, every major newspaper to this day still reports box office numbers, and the success of a film is now judged on its opening weekend instead of its entire run as had been the practice beforehand. In Europe, with an ocean separating the drama revolving around the production and the Hollywood machine, Heaven's Gate was received in much better light, certainly not gone with the wind levels, but certainly better than what it had been considered stateside. It's even like, it even comes up on like some like top films of all time lists over there. But to this day in Hollywood, however, it remains one of the biggest flops ever and the film that destroyed United Artists. But that's not the end of the story for Heaven's Gate. Chimino's original cut of Heaven's Gate received rave reviews when it was shown in the UK in 1982. In 2012, Chimino presented a restored and slightly tweaked version at the Venice Film Festival, and its reception was even more positive. I watched this beast. 
Is it perfect? No. It's got flaws like any other. It's hard to follow. And the dancing scenes are random as hell. And don't get me started about the roller skating one. But was it worthy of the scathing reviews it received or to be labeled the worst film ever made? In my opinion, absolutely not. It's not bad. It's a little boring, but it's not bad. The visuals are freaking incredible, so but you can tell he wasted a lot of time on them. The sepia tone's a little weird, but other than that, it's, it's, it's fine. I liked it better than Power of the Dog, and that got nominated for Best Picture. It kind of seems to me, maybe in a world that now has people willing to like binge watch 10 plus hour long shows on the streamers, Tamino may have just been a little ahead of his time. If he had been around now making films like The Deer Hunter, like now, I'm sure he would have been a streaming services dream. To this day, Heaven's Gate remains a cautionary tale to filmmakers and studio executives alike. A reminder that there is no such thing in Hollywood as too big to fail. I don't believe in storyboarding. I don't like copying a two-dimensional drawing on a piece of paper. I want to be free in a 360-degree space. I call it demolishing the wall. The average movie consists of about 350 setups and 350 separate shots which have to be made. Most of those 350 shots will be close-ups of faces, talking heads, and you're painfully aware that you're watching someone being photographed reciting some lines. The idea is to smash that wall, move around, Otherwise, it's a proscenium. You want to get to the real world. After all, movies have something essentially magical about them. In the words of my friend Bernardo Bertolucci, you're creating a nostalgia for a past that never existed. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in future, please reach out in, on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. I really need soundproofing because I got delayed an hour by a leaf blower this morning. If you'd like to help me out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. There's also Buy Me a Coffee. We literally just buy me a coffee to keep my ass awake so I can write these scripts. I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, the film that many believed would become the second coming of Heaven's Gate, Ishtar. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. (laughs) 